0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motz, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series on the life of Jacob with James Jordan here, Jordan's going to continue on with Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis chapter 26, and this talk is just full of typological observations. He discusses many of the biblical symbols in the passage and how they're fulfilled right there in the context of Genesis 26. He also discusses how many of these are fulfilled in Christ in the New Covenant. This is a fascinating talk from James Jordan from beginning to end, and we really hope that you all are sharpened and encouraged by it. With that, we hope that you all enjoy listening in on these observations on this passage. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: I'm going to read chapter 26, verses 12 to 22. And we'll conclude that section and then move on. Gizcoc sowed in that land and reap in that year a hundred measures. Thus did Yahweh bless him. The man became great and went on went on becoming greater until he was exceedingly great. He had herds of sheep and herds of oxen and a large retinue of servants, and the Philistines envied him. And all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines stopped up and filled with earth. Abimelech said to Yitzchak, Go away from us, for you have become exceedingly more mighty in number than we And Yitzchak went up from there. He encamped in the wadi of Gerar and settled there. And then we have this parenthetical statement. Yitzchak had again dug up the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines having stopped him up after Abraham's death. And he called them by the names, the same names by which his father had called them. Yitzchak's servants also dug in the wadi. And found there a well of living water. Now the shepherds of Gerar quarreled with the shepherds of Gizcoc, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Bickering, because they had bickered with him. And they dug another well, and quarreled also over it. So he called its name Satan. And he moved on from there, and dug another well. But they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Open Spaces. And said, Indeed, now Yahweh has made space for us, so that we may bear fruit in the land. Last time we looked at the structure of this passage and how it starts with God blessing and ends with God blessing and moves through these general themes. We saw that Isaac is blessed a hundredfold. It says he gets a hundredfold prosperity and Yahweh blessed him. Then it says he gets sevenfold greatness and the Philistines envied him. And the Philistines asked him to leave tell them to leave, so he goes to a wadi, and a wadi is like an arroyo, only it's a little bit more, the place where there are flash floods every now and then, but usually it's dry. But of course, since it's a waterbed there, you would dig water and find it. Now we come to page 20, and verse 18, which is the center of this passage, is actually a parenthetical expression. In fact, the order of presentation in this passage strikes us as strange. And that's why we are provoked to consider why the passage is ordered the way it is. Look at verse 15. All the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, the Philistines stopped up. Then Abimelech says, go away from us. So Isaac went away. Then verse 18 says, Isaac again dug up the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham's father. The Philistines hadn't stopped them up. Why repeat all this information here? What is being said? Did he dig them up when he was in Gerar or after he left Gerar or both or what? Well, the answer would be both, but the repetition forces us to consider why this statement is structured. And actually, verse 18 could just as well be read. Isaac had again dug up wells of water because we've already seen that he was digging some up and now he's moved on. The thing to notice is that the Philistines stopped him up. They filled them with dirt. Well, what does the Bible tell us about that? It tells us the curse is mediated to us through the soil. The man is made of dust, and to dust he returns. And so to fill it up with dirt, put dust in it, is to kill it. And symbolically speaking, then these wells are killed by Isaac renews them, brings them back to life again, but then he's denied them and has to move on. I think that we can see this speaks to us of renewing a heritage in the church, in the kingdom of God. We have to revive the old things that have been forgotten, but we also have to move on. And you can fall into either error, despising the past or becoming real past oriented and refusing to move on because God never turns back the clock. In terms of a deep structure, it's possible that part of the reason these events flow out the way they do is we have the Father digging the wells, which means he sends the Spirit, and then after that the Son digs the wells and sends the Spirit in these two generations. And because human life images the life of God, perhaps there's a relationship between the two. Well, then in verses 19 to 21 we get new wells. It would seem that these are new wells which are not the ones that Abraham had, since Isaac gives them names. The other wells he calls by the same names as his father called them, although later on when he names the well Sheba, that is the same name that Abraham had given. So who knows, maybe these are also Abraham's old wells. Maybe there's a little sign that said, Dug by Abraham 50 years ago says he digs the wells, and the shepherds quarrel with him. So he names the first well bickering, they dig another well, they quarrel over it, and he calls it sitna, which is the same as the word Satan, opposition, adversary, and then he digs another well and they didn't quarrel over it, so he calls it open spaces, because now they have been given space in which to have their sheepdom and be fruitful. We notice that it's not the time for the sons of Israel to take dominion over this land. Joshua uh, would not have done this. <laughs> Joshua would have killed them all and taken the well, because that was what was true then. But this is not the same historical situation. We have to know what time of history we're in to know how to apply these things. Isaac just submits. Some people have said that Isaac is apparently a very passive character. We don't know what in the world Isaac was like. Isaac lived 170 or 80 years. We have about three incidents out of his life in the Bible. He might have been a big, boisterous, flaming guy. But in this situation, he quietly goes along with things. You can't psychologize these Bible characters, and they live nearly 200 years based on four or five incidents in their lives. That's not why they're here. So, Isaac is presented as somewhat passive in this situation. Abraham had been as well in this situation. It's not yet the time to rule. It's not his land. So, he goes along with it. He's patient. Patience is a major theme in Genesis. Adam was told that sooner or later he'd be given the tree of knowledge. But he's supposed to wait and learn patience and not grab it for himself. Similarly, in Hebrews, it says that Abraham, having patiently waited, we're supposed to have the faith of Abraham. Abraham was very patient. Isaac is patient. Patience is not gritting your teeth and saying, Well, I guess I have to endure this. Patience is I know that it will come in the end, and I'll joyfully do what I'm supposed to do now, and when it comes, I'll be glad about that too. We see here that God requires us to move on, but does not necessarily prosper our first attempts. Isaac had to move on from Gerar, but as soon as he started, he moved out into a place where he could have expected, okay, God, you want me to move on? I'll go over here and start digging wells. There's conflict. You always see that in the Bible. God starts something new, almost immediately there's conflict. There's trials. As soon as Israel comes out of Egypt, what happens? Well, they need food. Then there isn't any water. Then they have to deal with the Amalekites. Then they get to Mount Sinai. There's always a challenge that comes up when a new project is started, and that preliminary trial is something you have to kind of work your way through, and that goes back to the garden. As soon as Adam and Eve were made, almost immediately, there's a challenge. Satan comes and says, eat this fruit. They have to deal with that. You kind of get tested in terms of your new situation. Isaac is tested. Is he going to fight with these guys, seize the kingdom that God is not ready to give them? Or is he going to quietly submit and move on? The answer is, he quietly submits and moves on. See, this is going to be the challenge later on in the passage that matches this one. Here we have Adam and the tree of knowledge, which is eventually. Well, what does Adam do? He grabs it. Now, here we have the sons of Abraham. And they're promised the land of Canaan. But they're supposed to wait until God is ready to give it to them. Do they seize it? Fight for it? Or do they wait? What does Isaac do? He waits. Now, remember that in our chiasc structure of the Jacob narrative, the story that matches this one is the story of Simeon and Levi and the rape of Dinah. What happens in that situation? Do they try to go along, or do they take over that territory? They try to take over the territory and seize the territory. and doesn't work, and they're driven out. This is when Adam tries to seize things. It doesn't work, and he's driven out. So, you're always looking at patience in these passages. And that's one of the major themes here. But now, something else that is also interesting here. When they steal our wells, we just move on and dig another well. The fact that they stole the first well you dug doesn't mean to say, well, I'm going out of the well digging business. This means you go on and dig another well. And what's interesting is, at the end of the story, they come back and repent. Now... This is something that happens in life, it's happened to me, this happens. Some of you can think about situations in your life where you dug a well, they fought you for it, and you have to decide, is this something really worth fighting for, or shall I just move on and dig another well? I think there's a lesson here, and there's a lot of encouragement here, when this kind of thing happens. In a business situation, you start a business, or any number of other situations. It's not always the wisest course to fight over the things that you already have. What Isaac does is he says, you want it, you can have it. I'll go dig another. Eventually, he winds up with a whole lot more than he had to start with. It's also interesting here that these guys come back at the end and say, we're kind of sorry about what we did before and we want to make it right with you. You never know if the people who fought you over the earlier well may come back around later on. That also happens in life and history. Jonathan Edwards was driven out of his church by a pack of lies. Twenty years later, some of the people came around and said, some of the people who led in that said, we're sorry. They laid a the dollar short, but they were still sorry. That's what happens here. So, these stories are lessons in terms of how life works. The types of Christ... There are also lessons in terms of how life works. You can't absolutize this. There are other stories in the Bible where you do fight for your well. But there's also this story. And if it's real clear that the Abimelech controls this space and he wants you to move on, then you say, okay, I'll move on because there are other places to dig wells. Go dig another. Now, one other thing, this isn't marked in your notes, but I want to call attention to it because it anticipates something I'm going to come to in a sec. Verse 20 says, the shepherds of Gerar quarreled with the shepherds of Isaac, saying the water is ours. He could have said the servants of Abimelech quarrel with the servants of Isaac. It doesn't. It says shepherds. Now, he may say, big deal. What else would it say? Well, if we go back to chapter 13, you don't need to look there. I'll just read it. In chapter 13, 7 and 8. It says there was a quarrel between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. So Abram said to Lot, pray let there be no quarreling between me and you, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. So we have an earlier quarrel that's similar to this, where people separate in terms of how much space there is, only it's over herds instead of flocks. It's cows instead of sheep and goats. And given the fact that cows and sheep and goats are real important in the Bible and they have different meanings in the later sacrificial system, there's probably something to be noted there in terms of a way of a contrast. And I don't know what it is, but I wanted to point it out to you. I do think part of what's here is, we saw last week that this entire story is prophetic of the Exodus from Egypt. Remember that the Israelites in particular are called shepherds when they go down into Egypt. Remember what it says about the Egyptians? That the occupation of being a shepherd was regarded as an abomination by the Egyptians. And so, Israel, as they go down to Egypt, are given the land of Goshen, which is really great land, but it's a separate part of Egypt, because the Egyptians don't want to be around stinky shepherds. Sheep really stink. And... We don't know for sure if that's why or what the reason is, but it says the Egyptians regarded shepherding as a distasteful occupation and they wanted to keep it at a distance. Israel is defined as a nation of shepherds and also defined as a nation of sheep at Passover when a sheep substitutes for them. So right here, I think we can see that this characterization of Hebrews as shepherds and as sheep is pointed to in this passage partly because that's what's going to happen later on. It's as shepherds and as sheep that they repeat this history at the Exodus. But there's another aspect as well, and I mentioned it before, and we're going to come back to it in just a sec. A generation earlier, when an earlier Abimelech fought with Abraham about these wells, Abraham gave seven sheep to Abimelech in exchange for the well. Actually, he sent seven sheep to Abimelech. Now that is followed by sending Isaac into Gerar. The seven sheep that come from Abraham and go to Gerar for the wells is parallel to Isaac, the son of Abraham, going into Gerar for the wells. I'm going to unfold that for you in a few minutes. But the very fact that he shows up there With sheep, as sheep, is following on something that had happened in the previous generation where sheep were sent for the wells from Abraham. So, I wanted to point that out. Something in the text here, it didn't have to be written this way. could have said, Isaac's herdsmen fought with the other herdsmen. Or, his servants. Verse 19 says, Isaac's servants dug in the wadi. And you could have said in verse 20, Now the servants of Abimelech quarrel with the servants of Isaac. But no shepherd comes up and is particularly noted here. We want to be aware of the sheep theme. Well, finally, it's the third well that is the well where there's prosperity. And this follows out a theme that's in the Bible about 150 or 200 times. And that is that things change on the third day or in the third year or in the third month or on the third hour. You have conflict, and then when you get to the third, things change. And when you get to the fourth, you move into a preliminary Sabbath, where the lights are lit in the heavens in anticipation of the seventh day, which is the final Sabbath. So, Jesus resurrected on the third day. He ascends to the heavens on, so to speak, the fourth day. These are all themes that are all over the Old Testament the third day change. And here it is again, the third well. The first well bickering. The second well even more than that, see. And the first well is just some conflict. Isaac says, hey, don't want any conflict. We'll just go on dig another well. The second well is actual, real, hardcore opposition. The same word as the word Satan is used here. They call this well Satan, sit not. So, the opposition has increased to a crisis. But when we get past the crisis, we get to a third well, open spaces. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if the phrase, third time is a charm, comes up out of the Bible or not. Human life is made this way. Even if we didn't have the Bible, we'd know this. Because if you want to emphasize something, you say it three times. You don't say it four You know what I'm talking about? Do you? Don't you? See, you would ask somebody that question three times. You wouldn't ask him more than that. It's just human nature to do things in threes. Things that come in time, think about it. They'll check things out three times. it's not because people have read the Bible so much that they've all become aware of this third day, third hour, third time thing. Is that that's the way human life is which is why the Bible is the way it is. Just programmed into it. So the third time is a charm. It could be that that expression roots back into the idea of Jonah being three days in the whale and Jesus' resurrection. Or it could just be something that's there in human culture because that's the way it is. Now the next page gives us something that I talked about last week. I'm not going to go over it in detail. But this second story... Is parallel to the first and third stories. The next story we're about to look at, where we're at Beersheba, we move from open spaces to the Well of Seven. That story begins and ends with Beersheba, and that's the bracket there. Something happens in that story. The Gentiles come because God is blessing them and makes covenant. Blessing is what bracketed the other two stories. We discussed this last week. The first story, God appears to him and says, I'm going to bless you and give you lands and fulfill the oath to Abraham so you'll be like the stars and I'll give you these lands and bless the nations. Then the next story, the one we just looked at, is Yahweh blesses them. They're fruitful. There's an exodus. They go into the wilderness. They recover Abraham's legacy. They stay in the wilderness. There's more strife. Then they're fruitful and God blesses them. So we looked a little bit at how these stories are parallel. And now we want to look a little bit at how they're in sequence. And on the next page... I've just shown you how this whole passage is structured in terms of these three stories. The first part, we have a promise of blessing. Yahweh appears to him and says, I'm going to give you all this stuff because I promised it to Abraham." Then we have a blessing in context of faithfulness and trial as we try to dig these wells. And then we have a blessing in the context of rest and fulfillment. So we have a promise of blessing we have six days of work, and we come to a seventh day of rest and fulfillment. That's the structure of the passage. It moves from promise, to history, to Sabbath. We're at Beersheba, seven wells, the well of seven, the Sabbath concept, everything is restful there, the Gentiles come, they submit, and that climaxes it. But the story has these three sections. Promise, outworking, Sabbath. In terms of Abraham's legacy, the A section gives us a repetition of the promise as a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. God comes to Isaac and says, I'm promising you all this stuff because I promised it to Abraham. In the B section, the wells are Abraham's legacy, but they're thwarted for the present. In the C section, a blessing to the Gentiles comes as they dig up Abraham's Beersheba well. Notice this last time, and now we're going to come back to it in a bit more detail. Notice back on page 21, the C section, the well begins to be dug. And in the background, these guys are starting to dig this well. And Abimelech and Phicol and Ahazat come. And they make a covenant. And then they go off. And in the background, these guys have been digging this well the whole time. And then they come and say, we found water. So that these two events are parallel, digging this well up, and the Gentiles coming and making covenant are going on simultaneously, and the text forces us to see that. It didn't have to tell us that they began to dig the well and then Abimelech came. It could have just told us at the end that they found water. But we're told that to understand they're going on at the same time. As you dig up Abraham's legacy, the nations are converted. And so notice in the New Testament and Romans and Hebrews and other places, there's this big stress on being like Abraham, recovering Abraham's legacy. As we recover Abraham's legacy which is, for us, the whole Bible, faithful living in terms of everything God says. As we recover Abraham's legacy and dig up Abraham's well, the nations will be disciples. If we go off and recover all kinds of other legacies, they won't be. If we don't study the Bible and learn it, they won't be. The digging up Abraham's well has to do with prayer and learning the Scripture. That's where life is, and you dig it up, and then the nations convert. As you do it, the nations convert. Otherwise, they don't. It's only been in times when the Bible has once again been studied, and people have worked at rebuilding the church, digging the well. Only in those times of history have we seen the gospel go out, and other nations and people convert many centuries that doesn't go on and nothing happens finally this whole chapter full event by event the things that are said in verses 3 and 4 God says I will bless you sojourn in this land and I will give you a blessing and what happens Isaac sojourns and he gets a hundredfold blessing and he's sevenfold blessing and all this stuff we've seen and then he says I will make your seed like the stars of the heavens. Well, verse 16, Abimelech says, Go away, because you've become so many more in number than we are. Like the stars. Then he says, To your seed I will give these lands. Well, that starts in that they do have dominion over some of these wells. And they're allowed to stay there. And then it says, All the nations of the earth shall enjoy blessing through your seed. And the next thing that happens is, Some of the Gentiles come and are blessed. So the precise things that God says as he makes a promise to Isaac as Isaac goes into Gerar, they receive a first fulfillment while he's there. He gets blessed. He gets some of the land, some of the Gentiles come. And that assures him that eventually it'll come true in the fullest sense. Now I'm going to quickly, and I don't know if we'll get through all of this, but I'm not going to come back to it next week take us back to the first time we come to Beersheba. We are now at Beersheba. Isaac is digging up the Beersheba well again. Abimelech comes to him, makes a covenant with him, and the well is dug up and Isaac names it Beersheba, which is the name Abraham had given it. And now we want to go back and look in chapter 21 at the first time the Beersheba well comes into picture. There. Sheva, chapter 21, 22 to 34. The word Sheva means seven, and the word Shavah means swear. So, you'll see this as well of seven or well of the oath. Bear means well, because real wells have beer in them instead of water, or not. So, bear, Sheva, well of seven, bear, Shavah, well of oath. And it can mean either one, and it means both. Scholars regard it as a coincidence. Sheva and Shavah are the same, and that Abraham is making a pun when he names it well of the oath or well of seven. It's more likely that Sheva and Shavah really are the same word, and it just depending on context what it means. To make an oath is to do something seven times. God sets up the covenant. He does something seven times. He works in seven days. The Spirit is always the one who makes these covenants and oaths and he is the sevenfold Spirit. I think that it's really the same word. And the idea of oath-making and covenant-making and the idea of something being sevenfold are basically fundamentally connected. Now, let me just read to you chapter 21, 22 to 34. It was about this time, about that time. About what time? About the time that Ishmael was sent away. And these stories are linked. About the time Ishmael was sent away, verse 22, that Abimelech, together with Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. So now swear to me hereby, God, if you should ever deal falsely with me with my prodigy and posterity, then blah, 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 blah. That's the beginning of the oath. Rather faithfully as I have dealt with you, deal with me and with the land in which you sojourn. Abraham said, I so swear. But Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of the well of mortar that Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech said, I don't know who did this thing, nor have you ever told me, nor have I ever heard of it apart from today. Hey man, it's the first I've heard of it. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech and the two of them cut a covenant. This is the covenant. And then there's the well thing. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock aside. Navi said to Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs that you've set aside? And he said, Indeed. These seven ewe lambs you should take from my hand, so that they may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore that place was called Beersheba, Sheva, well of seven, or swearing. For there the two of them swore. Thus they cut a covenant in Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, arose and returned to the land of the Philistines. Now he planted a tamarisk, your Bible may say oak, in Be'er Sheva, and there he called out the name Yahweh, God of Ages. And Abraham sojourned in the land of the Philistines for many days. There is an inclusio in this passage. We now know what an inclusio is. The passage ends the way it begins, verse 22 Elohim is with you in all that you do. And at the end, he called out the name Yahweh, Elohim, everlasting, everlasting Elohim. That is the inclusion. Now, what's interesting is Abimelech uses the Gentile name for God, Elohim, not the covenant name Yahweh. And Abraham uses the same name, calls out the name Yahweh, the covenant name, but he also adds to it the Gentile name, the more general name, Elohim, everlasting God. But when we come to the Isaac story, when Abimelech comes to Isaac, he says, We've seen that Yahweh is with you. You are blessed by Yahweh. Now they're using the covenant name, so there's a contrast. And exactly why that contrast is there, I don't know, but there's a significance behind it, I can assure you. Someday people will be able to plumb the depths of this contrast. There's a reason why the second time around Abimelech is somehow or other moved closer in to the covenant situation and uses the name covenant. Now these events, these Gentiles coming happen in the context of the separation. And I think it's important for us to see this. It's a little bit off from our main study. But in chapter 13, if you remember Lot, And his herdsmen had a strife with Abraham and Abraham's herdsmen. And so they separated and Lot went off toward the cities of the plain where he wound up in trouble. And immediately after that happened, God appears to Abraham, verse 14 of chapter 13. Yahweh said to Abraham, after Lot had parted from him, Look, I'm going to give all this land to you, he says. Now, something similar happens here. What has just finished happening is Abraham and Ishmael have separated. Ishmael's a covenant son. He's circumcised. But Isaac gets hot. is now five years old, and he's officially being weaned and moving in with the men. Go to Leviticus 27 to find the clock of ages. What happens at particular times by implication. That's what's happening here. They're having a feast for the official weaning time of Isaac. Whether he continued to nurse till he was five is immaterial. Something happens at the age of five. And they're having a feast on this occasion. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian woman whom she had borne to Abraham laughing. Or literally Isaacing. So who's the real Isaac? And she says drive out the slave woman, and her son drive out Ishmael. Well, Abraham doesn't want to do that. But God says, go ahead and do it because I'll bless him. And so Abraham gives some water and bread to Hagar and Ishmael. And they go out into the wilderness to find another place to live. And in verse 15, the water in the skin was at an end. She cast the child under one of the bushes and she says, I don't want to see my boy die because there's no more water. And she wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Anybody tells you Ishmael's is unregenerate, didn't have a relationship with God, is wrong. He clearly does. God hears his voice. God's angel called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, verse 17, What ails you, Hagar? Don't be afraid. God has heard the voice of the lad. Where he is, arise, lift up the lad and grasp him with your hand for a great nation I will make of him. God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. New water. The old water is given out. But now God gives him new water. And then it says in verse 20, God was with the lad. Emmanuel, God with us. Now, verse 20 says, God was with the lad and he grew up. Verse 22, Abimelech said, God is with you, Abraham. This is a direct tie between these two things. In verse 22 it says, it's about the time that God is with the lad, Ishmael. And Ishmael is driven out and God says he's going to be with him. Then Abimelech comes and says to Abraham, God is with you. What does this do for Abraham? What's happened to Ishmael? Ishmael has been sent out and now he's a Gentile. And God has said, I'll bless him. But is he going to be saved? Is God going to be with him? Well, right about that time, some Gentiles come to Abraham and say, hey, we want to be in. We want to be in covenant with you. That's the proof to Abraham that yes, indeed, God is going to be with Ishmael. Just as Abimelech and his people are converts and they want to be with Abraham, so God is going to fulfill this promise to Ishmael and Ishmael will be saved. This connection between saving the Gentiles. Abraham has to separate from Ishmael, not because Ishmael is evil, but as the Bible tells us in other places, because sometimes we have to lay aside every weight. Laying aside the weights that slow us down doesn't always mean separating from evil. It can mean setting aside things that are perfectly good, but are in the way of what you want to do. So, nothing wrong with Ishmael. Nothing wrong with separating Ishmael. But Ishmael was in the way at this stage in history. So there's a separation, and immediately after the separation, God does something, covenants are made, blessing ensues, and at the same time, there'll be blessing for Ishmael as well. Now we come to this seven new lamb business. I'd like for us to think about it, and your notes are pretty full here, so if this gets confusing, I think you can follow the notes if you want to study it out again later on. The first thing to notice is that a ewe lamb is a female and wells are female and sending out ewe lambs corresponds to the outflow of water from a well. The lambs are a substitute for the well water. They're given to Abimelech in exchange for it. Or possibly Abraham has seven wells because we'll see that Isaac digs up seven old wells. We've already seen that. We only are told about one well here in the Abraham story we find that Isaac digs several wells back up and gives them the same names as Abraham. So maybe there are seven wells here. Maybe that's implied. And that's why there's seven new lambs. If that's right, then the seven lambs buy seven wells, or some wells, for Abraham and thus for Isaac. And accordingly, it's sinful for the Gerarites to deny Isaac these wells. They belong to Isaac from Abraham. But the Philistines had taken them back over. They should not have done that. Now, in the context of Genesis, if you give seven of something, that's your whole creation. Seven lambs signify Abraham's whole creation. The seven days of creation are God's whole world. And seven of something is a symbol for the entirety. And since Abraham gives everything he has to Abimelech, and everything that Abraham has is Isaac. Abraham doesn't care about anything else. Isaac is everything. And Isaac will you see because Abraham's entire life, his whole life, is focused down onto Isaac. So, to send seven is equivalent to sending Isaac. And that's what is going to happen. Isaac is going to go down into this territory. He's going to follow these seven lambs down there, and that's a connection. The sevenfold use proceed from Abraham to Abimelech. Notice that Isaac, Abraham's lamb, also goes to Abimelech. Is Isaac a lamb? Yeah. In chapter twenty-two, Isaac is taken up to be sacrificed, and God provides a ram as a substitute. We're in this sheep stuff. The same thing happens to Isaac as happened to Ishmael. Ishmael, mama takes him out into a strange land, he almost dies, angel appears to him, gives him water so he can live again, and makes a covenant promise. Abraham, Isaac's father, takes him into a strange land, Isaac almost dies, the angel appears to him, provides him a substitute so he can live, and makes covenant promise to him. There's no accident that those two stories are the same. And the seven news are given. Well, my point is that Isaac is the lamb that goes to Abimelech. The seven news are given as a proof that Abraham dug the well. Now, I think there's a deep structure behind this. Abraham, the father, Elohim with him, and here in the contrast between Elohim and Yahweh, I think the father is primarily in view. He provides the spirit water. Remember, the word Elohim is the one used in the Abraham well story. Mankind initially rejects the spirit and tries to seize the wells for himself. And that's what had happened. Pre-Christ men eventually accept the father Elohim based on the sacrifice of seven animal substitutes, which point toward the father provides the sevenfold lamb as the substitute, sending him into the world as Isaac is forced to gear are in chapter 26. Post-Christ men initially reject the son or lamb as he digs wells to provide water. With the spirit of Father Elohim, mankind eventually accepts the son lamb in his water. In other words, first of all, Abraham digs a well. Second of all, the people in Gerar sees the wells. Third of all, the Gerar people come and they accept the wells and make covenant with Abraham, they accept God. But in the course of that event, there is a picture of a lamb that's going to be doing something in the future. And so the next thing that happens, the son comes, Jesus comes, and he is a substitute. He's sent into the world. After that, he starts to send wells at Pentecost, but people fight over the wells. They want to steal all the energy of the kingdom. They want to steal the universities that we build and the colleges that we build and the hospitals that we build. But eventually, they'll come back around like Abimelech and Phycol and accept the wells that belong to Christ and acknowledge Him. I think that's the overall large sequence behind this. One other thing to notice here in connection with these events, seven lambs and an oath. The oath that God made in chapter 22 to Abraham and He repeats it to Isaac and this is the only oath that we're told about. He confirms that oath by sending His lamb to the world to suffer to provide the spirit water. Here in the story in chapter 21, we have a covenant and we have an oath. The oath is connected with the Lamb. God gives all He has, which is His seven, which is His whole creation, which is His only Son. An oath is a seven pledge of one's whole world. That's the connection between the words. Sheva and Shavah. Same word, and that's really where I've been going in this. Why is this the same word? Why is this word Beersheba so important and keeps showing up? Because if you make a, a real oath, you're pledging yourself and everything that is yours, and especially your children. Thus God swears by himself, which is the second person who is offered a surety for the oath. God the Father gives us God the Son as a pledge of his oath. Abraham gives seven sheep. Abraham gives Isaac. We find that Abraham leaves Beersheba to offer his son and then returns to Beersheba in chapter 22. Abraham leaves Beersheba, goes to Mount Moriah, offers sacrifice, and then he comes back to Beersheba. Verse 19 of chapter 22, Abraham returned to the lads. They arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham remained at Beersheba. Isaac leaves Beersheba to go into the world and then returns to it. First he goes to Ishmael's place, the where he gets his bride. Compare that to the Jew first in Paul's statement that Ishmael is the Jews. Then he goes to the Gentiles, Gerar, to make the whole world fruitful with spirit water. Lastly, he returns to Beersheba where God appears to him. That's where we are. As soon as he gets back to Beersheba here in chapter 26, we read that God appeared to him. And Jesus returns the kingdom to the Father at the end. Finally, God swears by Himself at the time He takes Isaac away from Beersheba to offer him oath. When Isaac leaves Beersheba to go into the land of promise to be sacrificed, God swears by himself in chapter twenty two sixteen. That's the only place where it happens. By myself I swear. always word, because you have not withheld your only son, I will bless you. God mentions this only oath to Isaac when he is in Gerar in chapter 26, verse 3. The ram took Isaac's place the first time. God's oath by himself implies that his son will fulfill all these events. Now, if that's confusing, and I know it is because I do not want to take enough time to make it any clearer. I think if you look at these notes and look at the passages and think about, it'll come clearer to you. But we would need a lesson that lasted about two hours where we could build all this up and set it all up And then it would come into focus and trying to do that over several weeks would just be tedious and not helpful. But, just take away these things that these events are parallel and they're part of the staging for the story we'll look at next week. Abraham sends seven to Abimelech into that place. And this is his whole world signified by the number seven. Abraham sends Isaac into Abimelech's territory. It's not actually Abraham who does it. It's God who does it. Yahweh does it. Sends Isaac into Abimelech. Isaac is the lamb. Abraham seven goes to Abimelech for the wells. God sends Isaac to Abimelech to make wells. What's the fulfillment? The Father sends the Son to the world to provide the Spirit. That's what I wanted you to see. And woven into all of this is the well of seven. Call a well of oath or a well of seven. God swears by Himself, so that the Son is the surety. Abraham swears by the seven, so that the seven are a surety. Those seven are the same as Isaac, so Isaac is a surety. But ultimately, it's Jesus who is the surety of this oath. If I break this oath, you can have my son. Did God break His oath? No. So, when they killed Jesus and put him in the grave, were they able to keep him? No! But, the Father, had broken his oath, they could have. So, reflect on these things if you want. It's in your notes. You can think about it if you want to. But that's where I'm going to stop today. And next week, then, we will look at this last paragraph here. We're ready for it where God appears, and the appears, and the Gentiles make this covenant, which completes this story, and we'll be out of Genesis chapter 26.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those.